Good morning, faith family. I am personally so excited to be able to lead us in our study of God's Word today. Uh, Today, we are beginning a new sermon series for Advent here at Brook Hills. If you're a little unfamiliar with Advent, Advent is just a word that means coming or arrival. And the Advent season is a time in which we look forward to celebrating together the coming, the arrival of Jesus Christ on that first Christmas so many years ago. Now this year we've named our Advent series Redeeming Christmas. And this isn't about like making Christmas great again or putting Christ back into Christmas or anything like that. I mean, after all, we're Christians. Christ has never left Christmas for us, right? So we don't need to do that here. Rather, we've called it Redeeming Christmas because what we want to do is remind one another how Christmas is redeeming. That when we look forward to celebrating that first Christmas, that Advent, recognizing that that was the day in which Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, in which he came, he arrived here on earth to dwell among his people, he brought redemption with him. But what exactly is redemption? I mean, outside of the church, it's not exactly a word or a concept that we use very much. It can basically mean kind of three different things. One is when we talk about redemption, we can mean making up for some kind of fault or error, or bad behavior of some sort. Uh, As an example, I think about the movie Dumb and Dumber, uh, classic. I think about Harry and Lloyd trying to get to Aspen, but late one night, Harry falls asleep, and Lloyd takes a wrong turn, and they end up in Nebraska. And Harry gives up. He starts hitchhiking back home. And then as he's on this lone road, eventually he hears a noise, and Lloyd pulls up, and he has traded their dog van for a little mini bike. And he pulls up besides Harry and Harry says, Lloyd, just when I thought you couldn't get any dumber, you go and do something like this and totally redeem yourself. It's making up for his blunder by showing up on the mini bike. Okay. So that's one way that redemption can be used. Another way that redemption can be used is in order to get one thing in exchange for another thing. So this is happening a lot right now. We're redeeming special offers we've been getting for Black Friday and for Cyber Monday and all those things. We're redeeming coupons you know, in order to get uh, the prices down on goods that we might be buying throughout this holiday season. Some of us redeem online codes all the time for various things. I know my son does it for video game stuff like all the time. And so redeeming is we're getting something by exchanging something else for it. And then we can also use the word redemption to refer to the fulfillment of a promise. Uh, So whenever you pay off a debt that you owe, you have redeemed your commitment to repay that debt. It's also sometimes used in referring to a politician who has won election and it refers back to all of the many pledges they've made while on the campaign trail. They now have the opportunity in office to redeem all those pledges. So you can understand why we don't use the word very much, right? But Christmas is redeeming because it involves all three of those things. It certainly is about getting one thing in exchange for something else. It definitely is about the fulfillment 
of a promise. And it is most certainly also about making up for some error and really bad behavior, which brings us to today's text. So if you would, get out your Bibles, open them up, or navigate to the Bible app on your device. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, that's right. We are kicking off our Advent series by looking at the fall of humankind. Now, at first glance, it might seem like these things don't have much in common with each other, the story of the fall and the story of the first Christmas. But at least one thing that they have in common is how familiar they are to us. We've heard these stories a lot. Those of us who have been in church for any amount of time, we have heard the story of Christmas. We at least get it every year, right? We've heard it over and over and over. Chances are, we've also heard the story of the fall over and over and over. And so we can be tempted to kind of feel like, okay, yeah, we've heard it, we know it, don't you have anything else for us this year? But it's vitally important to continuously return to these stories in God's word. One, to remind us of what those stories have to say to us, but two, to also see new things that God is going to bring out in them for us to learn. After all, there is no time in which we look at a part of God's word and it returns to us void. That never happens. So with that in mind, please follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 13 of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. In the two previous chapters to this one, Genesis 1 through 2, we read accounts of the God of the universe creating the universe, making everything that exists. And then we see him specifically make a garden, the Garden of Eden, as the dwelling place for the pinnacle of his creation, Humankind, man and woman, not just a place for them to dwell, but for him to dwell with them. And in Genesis 2, we zoom in and we see him create this first man and this first woman and place them there in the garden. 
But then here when we get to Genesis 3 and we look at the story that's known as the fall, what do we see? What do we see at the fall? Well, the first thing that we see is this. We see distortion and deception. We see distortion and deception. You know, up to this point in the story of the Bible, there's been one main character who's the main character. It's his story, God. And then there's kind of been two supporting players, man and woman. But here we're introduced to a fourth character, the serpent. Later in God's word, actually jumping from the first book of the Bible all the way to the last book of the Bible, the serpent is clearly identified as Satan, the devil, the enemy of God. This is what John wrote in Revelation 12, 9. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, the serpent, Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. Deception is what he does. And deception is what he's doing here in Genesis 3. And how does he do it? With distortion, by distorting, specifically by distorting God's word. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The answer is no. That is not what God really said. Listen to God's actual command from the previous chapter. Back in Genesis 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? No, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, just accept this one, because if you eat of that one, you'll die. Do you hear the distortion between those two things? But it's not just the serpent that's distorting what God said. Listen to how Eve, how the woman responds to him. She says, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it, or touch it, or you will die. She's adding to it a little bit there, right? God just said you must not eat of it, or you will die. She's saying you must not eat it or even touch it. Well, what's going on here? Now remember, the serpent is cunning. He's crafty, he's wily, he's pretty smart. And there's a reason that he's approaching the woman here. And at least part of that reason is probably found in Genesis 2.16. And this fact, not that women are more easily deceived, but that the woman, Eve, she wasn't there. She had not been created yet. God made man and gave man this command. Evidently, the man then was supposed to relay God's message to the woman when God brought her to him. And in this, Satan sees an opportunity. God told man, man tells woman. Maybe there might be something lost a little bit in the translation. Like a cosmic game of telephone, you know, where someone whispers a message in someone's ear, and then they whisper it in someone else's ear, and they whisper it in someone else's ear, and you kind of go around the circle, and by the time it gets back, the message is altered, it's changed. It's not exactly what was whispered right there at the beginning. Maybe that's what's going on. 
Maybe it's not, you don't know actually what God said. Maybe this is how Adam relate to it, but there could be something else to what Eve is doing here by her making God's command more strict. Because this is something that we do ourselves whenever we don't like an instruction that we are given. You know, there might be times in which I need my son to do some things around the house and I tell him he's not allowed to play video games right now. And he might not like that. And later in complaining about it, he might say, well, dad said I couldn't play video games at all today. Is that what I said? No, that's not what I said. I said, you can't play video games right now. But now you're really, in the, I can't play video games all day. That's not, that's not, but because I don't like it, I, add, I make it sound worse than it was because I want it to sound more unreasonable. I want it to sound more unjust. I want it to feel like it's more than it should be so that I can begin to think about how I might justify not going along with that instruction or to make myself feel a little bit better whenever I break that command that I've been given. But regardless of the motivations behind it, the result is the same. Here we're no longer dealing with the actual truth of what what God said. It has been slightly distorted. And in that distortion, it leaves room open for the deception. She says, the tree in the middle of the garden, we can't eat it or touch it or we will surely die. And Satan says, no, you will not certainly die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There it is, the outright lie. You will not die. That directly contradicts what God himself has said. And in the man and the woman's response to that lie, we see the next thing we see here at the fall, and it's this. We first see distortion and deception. We now see doubt and disobedience. Doubt and disobedience. God said, don't eat that fruit. She took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now let's just pause for a moment lest we make too much of a villain out of Eve, okay? Adam's right there with her. All the verbs in verses one through five are second person plural. So if the serpent was a southerner, he wouldn't say, did God really say you can't eat from any tree? He would say, did God really say y'all can't eat from any tree? He's not just talking to the woman. He's talking to the pair, the man and the woman. The man is right there with her. What's he doing? Well, we don't know what he's doing, but he's definitely not stepping up. When Eve misquotes the command that he was directly given by God, Adam doesn't offer a loving correction. No, babe, that wasn't quite it. It was a little different. No. No. And he goes along with what Eve does. He goes along with the disobedience. See, the disobedience here in this chapter is clearly stated. It's very explicit. But the doubt that we see here, it's a little more implied. And it's implied in Adam's silence. It's implied in Eve looking at how good that fruit looks on the tree and weighing God's command with her own desire. What is the doubt revealed there? What, What are they doubting? Well, they're doubting God's goodness. That's what Satan's leading them to do, right? In fact, 
God knows if you eat this, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him. Why wouldn't God want you to be like him? That seems like a pretty good thing. So if he's trying to keep you from that, he must not be so good. Hmm, maybe you have a point there. They're doubting God's goodness, but it doesn't stop there. They're doubting his holiness, his seriousness about what he says and what he commands. They're doubting his justice, that he will follow through with the consequences that he has laid out for them. They are doubting his love, the same love that caused him to create everything in the world, to create them, to make a place for them where he would dwell with them. They're doubting that that love also drove him to give them this command, to provide some restrictions. They are doubting whether or not God really cares about them and wants the best for them and actually knows what the best is for them. And their doubt then leads directly to their disobedience, eating the fruit. Now, let me, let me be careful here because I know uh, uh, some of you have to be like me. Which means there are times in your faith journey, maybe those times are even now where you've got questions. And you might even have doubts, wondering, is this really true? Can I really trust what I've been taught? What does God's word actually say about a particular topic? And I don't want to give the impression that just because those questions arise in your mind, you're now in a lot of serious trouble. Rather, it's what do you do with those questions and those doubts? I have so many friends in my life who in face with questions and their doubts, they run to look for answers and look for assurances in all kinds of other places outside of God's word, outside of the church, outside of God himself. And in many instances, it has led, led some to basic destruction of their lives in many different ways, but certainly destruction of their faith in many different ways. When you have questions, when you have doubts, why would you not go to the one who has all the answers? Why would you not go to the one who alone has the power to offer any kind of assurance, who proves himself patient and faithful over and over and over and over. Deconstruction is a, is a big word in the world right now to describe how people are wrestling with faith and even some walking away from it and dealing with problems that they see in the church that many of which are very valid. But my friends that have been through that process, my encouragement to them is just always this, don't give up on Jesus. Look, I get it. You're mad at the church, you've been hurt in severe ways, you're disappointed, you're disillusioned, you're completely done, but he can handle that. Do you not think that God can handle your doubts and your questions? Do you think he's scared by your doubts? Do you think he's worried that you might catch him off guard by what questions you have? Do you think you're going to offend him with the deepest, darkest parts of your heart that he's already completely aware of? No, take your questions and your doubts to him because what we see here is that's not what Adam and Eve do. God is dwelling in the garden with them. They walk with him there in the garden like you would walk with a friend. And yet they take the word of the serpent. Oh, this guy sounds pretty good. We'll go with what he says. So they eat, they doubt, and then they disobey. 
Now, one thing that the servant said is he said, your eyes will be opened. And that part proves to be super true. And what do they see when their eyes are open? They see that they're naked. Now, they'd always been naked, but it hadn't mattered before. It was a childlike innocence for them. And any of us who have been around super little kids like toddlers, we know what that's like. It could be uh, a child of our own or a younger sibling or a niece or a nephew or a friend's child or something. But, you know, they get out of the bath at nighttime and they throw that towel. And all of a sudden they're running through the house as much as just it's all fun and games. We're like, there's no shame. There's there's nothing, nothing. It doesn't occur to them to hide their nakedness. They're not aware. There's an innocence there about their awareness of that. But that innocence is now gone for Adam and Eve. It it is broken. And so what do they do in response? Well, they try to cover themselves, cover up their nakedness, and they hide. They attempt to hide their guilt, to hide their shame, and they attempt to hide from God. We all know what this is like too. You might be like me. You remember growing up and there were times at your house in which your behavior was not as it should be and you pushed things a little too far with your mom and she told you just you wait until your father gets home. And then later that day, you'd hear the garage door opening. And if you, again, if you were like me, you would make yourself as scarce as possible. And that's what Adam and Eve were trying to do here, trying to hide from the omniscient one. So of course it doesn't work. God comes and finds them. Why did you hide from me? We hid because we were naked. Who told you you were naked? And then God's next question clearly reveals that he already is fully aware of what's going on. Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And there's really only one acceptable answer here, right? Yes, yes, we did. But that's not what happens. They admit the eating, but they try to shift the blame all over the place to someone else. Adam starts it off. Well, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. It wasn't me, it was Eve's fault. Oh, how far we have come from this one at last, this bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The honeymoon is most definitely over for these two. But it's even worse than that because Adam says, the woman you gave to be with me. He's not just trying to shift the blame to Eve, he's trying to put the blame on God himself. You gave her to me. Look at what happened. How could you do this? God, it's your fault. You're to blame too. And this moment, Adam is clearly siding with the serpent. The serpent, Satan, he sought to get Adam and Eve to question, to doubt God's goodness. Why would he withhold this fruit from us? Can that be good? And here, Adam is also questioning God's goodness. You gave her to me, the one that's messed all this up. How could you? Now, the woman, she doesn't fare much better in her response, right? She attempts to shift the blame from her, not back to Adam, but rather to the serpent. The serpent deceived me. And again, they're not, they're not denying that they've eaten the fruit. They're just trying to shift the blame somewhere else. But when God came to them and called them out and questioned them on their sin, what he was trying to do was lead them toward repentance, Lead them out of the the hiding, out of their shame and guilt to face their sin, to confess it to him, and to find the forgiveness from the only one who could grant them the forgiveness they desperately needed. But instead, they try to deny their blame, to shift their blame instead of rightfully owning that guilt that is theirs. So their guilt leads to shame, which then leads to blame. Instead, their guilt was meant to lead to shame, which was meant to show them their need 
for forgiveness, which would then lead them to the one who could forgive them. But instead, this is what it leads to. The third thing that we see at the fall, discipline and death. Discipline and death. And there are some specific consequences that God lays out for all three of these, for the man, the woman, and the serpent. And we don't have time to get into all of them. We'll look at a part of one shortly in just a moment. But instead, I would like to ask you, just follow along with me as I read just the last verses of this chapter, verses 22 through 24. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, there were lots of trees in the garden. They could eat of the fruit of any of those trees, except one. But there were two really special ones. The one they couldn't eat from, knowledge of good and evil, but also the tree of life. You eat the fruit from that tree and you live. You eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you die. Well, Adam and Eve chose the second one so they can no longer enjoy the first one, the tree of life. And so they lose their home. And they'll eventually lose their lives. But even more serious than that, they have lost the intimacy that they enjoyed with their creator. And the same is true for every single one of us. You see, when we read the fall, we may be tempted to want to just scream and shout at Adam and Eve for blowing it for the rest of us. But the reality is that none of us would fare any better. And we know that because we don't. The pattern that we see here in Genesis 3 plays out in our lives all the time. Did God really say, no, that won't happen? That scripture is too narrow, is too restricting, is too old-fashioned. God surely wants only what's good for you, what will make you happy. And that's keeping you from what's good for you or keeping you from happiness. We weigh God's commands against our desires all the time. We justify our temptation. We doubt his goodness and his holiness and his wisdom and his justice. And we doubt his love. And it leads us to disobey all the time. It will lead us to do that today if it hasn't already. And just like Adam and Eve, we deserve Discipline and death as a result. So Merry Christmas. Except this is the part that makes Christmas merry. This is the part. You see, we we have a saying in the storytelling world where we say that in order for the good to be really good, the bad has to be really bad. And you don't get more bad than Genesis 3. This is really bad. And we start here because it reframes Advent for us. Advent is not just waiting to get to open presents. It's not just anticipating a celebration of the birth of Christ. No, Advent is about more than that. We're meant to feel the Genesis 3, to look around us and to see how broken and awful the world is. And to know, just like every other man and woman in the world knows somewhere deep within them, that it is not supposed to be like this. There has to be something better. We long for something better. This is the longing of redemption. We cry out from within, isn't there something better? 
And the answer is found in the culmination of Advent on Christmas. And so we're going to do this over the next few weeks, but before we close out today, I want us to take just a moment to not only look at the fall, but to look at Christmas and to see, to find what we see there. So there's two things that I think we see at Christmas that's relevant specifically to what we've seen in Genesis 3. And the first one is this. At Christmas, we see that God comes and God calls. God comes and God calls. He does that here in Genesis 3. After they've eaten the fruit, God doesn't reject them. He doesn't immediately toss them out. He comes walking through the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the word walking there, it's the same word that's used to describe God's dwelling in the tabernacle later throughout the Old Testament. It's a living, it's, an, it's a, it's a continual, continual presence with his people. He hasn't just shown up, he's been around. And obviously he knows all and he comes to them. And he cries out to Adam, he asks Adam, right, where are you? And Adam immediately answers. So either Adam is the worst hide-and-seek player ever in the history of all humankind, or there's something else going on here. That the reason why when God says, where are you, and Adam immediately answers is because God's standing there right where Adam is. God knows. He doesn't have to look. He doesn't have to call. He goes to where Adam is, and yet he calls him to bring him out of hiding. He calls him to bring him out of his guilt and shame, trying to lead him to repentance, to the forgiveness that can be found only in him. But instead, Adam shifts that blame elsewhere. And that starts a cycle for all of God's people to continuously doubt what he has said, to doubt who he is, and to disobey him as a result. Yet we also see consistently and regularly God coming to his people and calling them back to himself. And at Christmas, we see the ultimate fulfillment of that cycle that's preceded it in the Old Testament throughout. And that God the Father sends God the Son. God comes here to earth and takes on flesh and becomes Emmanuel, God with us, dwelling among and with all his people once again. And he comes to seek and to save the lost. He comes so that those who, might, those who believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life as they were meant to have. And he calls us to come out of the darkness into the marvelous light, the marvelous light of his redemption. You see, he wants to gain one thing by exchanging it for something else. What is he wants to gain us. He's purchasing us back. He's buying our freedom from sin and death at the expense of his own life. He wants to make up for severe error and bad behavior. He wants to make up for all the sin, something we could never do, no matter how much we tried to keep his law. And he did that by living a perfect, sinless life and then making it possible through faith for us to be granted his righteousness. And he also works redemption by fulfilling the promise, the promise that is first offered here in Genesis 3. The promise that is the second thing we see at Christmas, and that is that Jesus crushes and conquers. 
Jesus crushes and conquers. When God is handing out some of these personal disciplines to Adam and Eve and the serpent, he begins with the serpent. And in verse 15, this is what he says to the serpent. He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. There has been, there is, and there will continue to be conflict between the children of Eve, implied to be those who are faithful to God, who, and the children of the devil, those who live in hostile rejection of God's rightful rule in the world and in their lives. It's a one or the other proposition. And there's hostility between the two. That's why we struggle in this world in so many different ways. But it's also not a struggle that we experience and we suffer without hope. Because in his time on earth, Jesus echoed God's promise of this hostility. He said in John 16, that you will have suffering in this world. But he didn't stop there. He continued with a promise. But take heart, take heart, have hope, because I have overcome the world. See, God promises the hostility, the suffering and the struggle, the hurt and the heartache, the trouble that we have in this world. But then he says, he ends this pronouncement to the serpent by saying, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel, referring back to the offspring of Eve. Because now he's not referring to the people of God, the family of his. He's referring to one specific offspring. He's made it singular. He will strike your head. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. This part of verse 15 is often called the proto-euangelion. That's just a fancy phrase that means the first gospel. And the reason why it's the first gospel is this is the first accounting of the good news, of the promise that God will not allow this wrongness to stand, that he will come himself. He will send one to make it right. And that one is an offspring of Eve. We'll see this in a genealogy that we look at in our gatherings next Sunday in Matthew 1, where it goes from Abraham all the way to Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of of Christ, that an offspring of Eve will come and he will crush the serpent's head. Whenever I think about Genesis 3.15, there's an there's a image I think of and I wanna show it with you or share it with you this morning. Is this one here? Some of you may have seen this before. I've actually shared it here before, but you see there Eve on the left holding the fruit, the fruit of her disobedience. The serpent's wrapped up around her leg. She's literally wrapped up, trapped by the evil one. Her head bowed in shame, her eyes lowered. But in their lowering, unwilling to look at Mary's face in front of her, they're fixed ahead of her towards Mary's belly, pregnant with the promised one, the expected one. And it appears to me that she tentatively reaches out her hand, like, could it be? Could he be? And Mary takes that hand and places it there. And there's a smile on Mary's face because she knows. She's trusted the promise that Gabriel has given her. That the one promise of Genesis 3.15 that will crush the head of the serpent has arrived. Advent's over. He's come. So you can see the serpent crushed there below her feet. You know, all of scripture following Genesis 3.15, it's building a picture 
like this, this offspring of Eve, the promised one who would crush and conquer the enemy, though it wouldn't be easy because though he would crush the serpent, the serpent would strike him. Like all offspring of Eve, Jesus would suffer here on earth in this world. And that suffering would ultimately lead to his death, but he wouldn't stay dead. He would rise again, and in doing so, he would begin the finalization of his defeat of the enemy. So that now, we live in a time of second advent, of waiting for a coming, for an arrival, of anticipating, not his first time, but his return, of longing for him to crush the head of the serpent once and for all. And we know from the promise of his word that he will come and he will crush and he will win. It's a done deal. Even in the midst of all the hostility we experience in this world, the outcome is secure. Jesus wins. And for all of us who put our faith in him, we win too. We will reign in victory with him. So what does that mean for us now? Well, for all of us, stop hiding. Stop hiding in guilt and shame from your disobedience. Stop trying to hide and pretend the questions and the doubts don't exist. Come to him. He has come near to you. The proof of that is you're here. So whether you have ever trusted him before or not, or maybe you have and yet you have walked away or you're questioning his goodness and his love for you. He is calling you out of that darkness and he's calling you to himself to find the redemption that he alone can provide. So answer his call and trust him today.